you could feel the gooey parts of your body, <laughs> for lack of a better term, that this, this bag of water that we're made out of vibrating and your ribs moving around from the roar of this jet engine. And you see this flame about 20 feet long coming out of the aircraft. It is one of the most incredible sights that you can just imagine. It's just an absolute definition of power. It was a time when computers were in their infancy. Few of them existed, they were incredibly expensive, enormous, and had less processing power than an iPhone. This was before virtual prototyping and all of the advanced tools engineers have at their disposal today. Using little more than slide rules, pencils, bar napkins, and anything they could find to commit their ideas to paper, a group of engineers designed one of the most advanced aircraft in aviation history. An aircraft that still holds the world record as the fastest manned aircraft. The year was 1958, and the aircraft they designed was the SR-71. Welcome to the first episode of Inside Skunkworks, a podcast that brings to light the dark classified world of the secret Lockheed Martin organization. Founded in 1943 by engineer and pioneer Kelly Johnson, the Skunk Works has a legacy of challenging what is impossible and making it a reality. Skunk Works engineers live in the future. About a, a year into my time at the Skunk Works, I got briefed on Senior Crown, um, which was the code word for the SR-71 Blackbird. This is Steve Justice, someone you'll hear a lot from in future episodes. He's a modern Skunk Works grandfather and a born aerospace geek who worked on many black programs throughout his career. You might recognize the F-117 Nighthawk and the YF-22, the prototype that later became the F-22 Raptor. And the programs he worked on in 2017 we probably won't know about until 2070. It was one of those wow moments. It was the first time I'd really been introduced to these long dramatic pauses that people would have before they would say anything because they would be processing inside their head what can they say and what can't they say. In, in college, as soon as the posters of the Blackbird showed up, I had one hanging on my wall. As a matter of fact, I have a I have a photo of my room and you can see part of that poster hanging on the wall from, you know, 1976. To understand the reason for the Blackbird, we have to step back into that day and time that created the Cold War. The Soviet Union had its set of paranoias because of the technology lead that the United States had and the United States had a set of paranoias because of the unknown state of the technologies of the Soviet Union. One of the mechanisms by which we chose to, to determine the status of technology items like the, the strategic bombers and the strategic missiles that the Soviet Union was developing was to fly aircraft into the Soviet Union and listen to radio signals and take photographs. 
Now imagine that you're a leader inside the Soviet Union and a reconnaissance B-29 flies into your nation. There's nothing you can do about it. It takes pictures, turns around, and flies home. You can imagine the tension that that would cause. Inside your head, you also know that that is the aircraft that dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So if it could fly in and take pictures, could the United States also fly in and drop atomic bombs? And so you can understand the urgency that the Soviet Union had in protecting their airspace from these intruders. And so we actually had aircraft shot down and American air crew captured by the Soviets for a number of years as we tried to determine the status of their military technologies. So Kelly and his team were presented with the challenge of creating this airplane could do over 2,000 miles per hour, fly above 85,000 feet, and be stealthy. And after a, a competition, uh, Lockheed was selected to build what was referred to as the A-12 Oxcart, the very first member of the Blackbird family. There were a number of A-12 Oxcarts built and flown on missions over Korea, but the U.S. Air Force saw the capabilities from the CIA's Blackbird and asked to have a version of their own, and that version was known as the SR-71 Blackbird. The Air Force wanted to carry a second crew member, and they wanted to fly further than the CIA airplane. So the SR-71 had a slightly longer fuselage, it carried more fuel, and could carry more equipment than the CIA's version of the Blackbird. In the 40s, Kelly Johnson founded the Skunk Works in Burbank, California. You'll hear more about Kelly in our next episode. Revolutionary aircraft after revolutionary aircraft rolled off the production line under his watch. You may think you haven't heard of him before, but Kelly and his Skunk Works are woven into the fabric of American history. You can find him in photos alongside Amelia Earhart in her Lockheed Electra in which she disappeared in, standing with pilot Howard Hughes and shaking the hand of President Ronald Reagan and President Eisenhower, to name a few. It's rumored that he coined the ever-popular phrase, keep it simple, stupid. Carrying on his legacy, Skunk Works is responsible for more X-planes or experimental aircraft than any other company in the industry. And now we're talking the late 1950s when this was conceived. And so I want you to think about where technology was back then. If you, if you want to kind of calibrate yourself, go back and look at what cars in 1958 looked like. Look at what, you know, jets typically looked like in that day and time. The primary calculators of the day were these mechanical calculators. I think they were called Frieden calculators. There were these huge machines with all these gears on the inside. My dad had one of these. And when you would do one divided by zero, just one digit would sit there and spin because one divided by zero is infinity and the machine could not calculate infinity. When you would do one divided by three, which is point three 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 three, you would hear this ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk as this register would move across and all the gears would be whirring on the inside. And that was the the sophisticated calculator of the day. So you also had to slide rules. The disconnect between 
the level of technology that was going to be expected to create the Blackbird and the tools we had at the time was absolutely immense. And, and Kelly originally challenged his team to create this airplane and have it flying in about two years. Okay, so, so half of a normal four-year college education, they were going to have to invent everything. The number of airplanes that could fly at three times the speed of sound, just over 2,000 miles per hour, was limited to a few X airplanes, experimental airplanes. And they did it for literally just seconds. They didn't do it for an hour the way the Blackbird was going to do it. They were generally rocket powered. They weren't powered by jet engines. Most of the jet engines were only designed for operation up to about Mach 2 or Mach 2.5 and then it was just for short periods of time. When you flew at that speed, the friction of the air rubbing over the aircraft heated the outside of the airplane up to between 450 and 550 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you want to know how hot that is, the, your oven on, on broil at home goes to about 550 degrees Fahrenheit. So the temperature inside your oven at home, the maximum temperature it can reach, was what the, the skins of the Blackbird felt like at cruise. Think about what happens to metal when it's that hot, it expands. In, in flight, the, the Blackbird would grow several inches in length because of, of thermal expansion. Now think about what that does to all the pieces on the inside of the airplane, all the cables that are running to control surfaces that have to accommodate this stretching that goes on. Imagine what's happening to jet engines on board there as they heat up. The cooling air available around the jet engine was 800 degrees Fahrenheit, okay, way hotter than your oven can get. That was the cooling air inside there. And so think about now the management of the thermodynamics, as we call it, the heat of the airplane as you're flying very slowly at low altitude, where it may be 70 degrees Fahrenheit, and as you climb in altitude, the temperature goes down. Typically, when you're on a, a jet airliner, it will be about zero degrees outside, okay, uh, at, at 35,000 feet. It, it's pretty cold outside. And so as the airplane would climb through altitude, it would get, start getting very cold, but as it would accelerate to its cruise speed, it would get very hot. So you had to accommodate everything from very cold temperatures to very hot temperatures on board. Now think about things such as lubricating fluids like oil for the engine. You may be sitting on the ground where it's freezing. You have to take off, fly, and still have oil that is functioning as a lubricant with cooling air at 800 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's also circulating inside the engine where it's even hotter. So if you've ever seen what happens to oil that operates at a really high temperature for a long time, it just turns to goo, it tar, basically. This is where you start seeing invention. What were the materials you could build this airplane out of that would retain their strength at, at that temperature? What were the lubricants that could maintain their properties to, to protect the metals? Um, how did you compensate for the change in shape of the airplane as the metals expanded while keeping the pilot alive inside the airplane? You know, these were just enormous challenges. Add on top of that now that you wanted to be stealthy. And stealth requires some really interesting materials and one of those is plastics. So now, imagine yourself, it's 1959. What kind of plastics existed in 1959? 
Not too many. And yet you had to have plastics for the stealth pieces on the airplane. And this was an operational airplane, not an experimental airplane. It had to be fielded. You had to be able to maintain it. It had to fly real live national need missions. I was talking to one Blackbird pilot. I said, explain to me what the environment was like inside the cockpit when you were flying. The pilots wear a spacesuit. It's a multi-layer spacesuit. I believe the glove has three layers in it. And he said, if I were to put the back of my hand against the canopy, the window that I look through, I could hold it there for about three seconds before the heat would go through and burn my hand through the glove. And yet where I sat, it was only 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So now think of the cooling load that's necessary to keep that heat from reaching the pilot. Okay, the refrigerators, essentially, you have to have on board. It's just mind-boggling the number of things they had to invent. And they were going to do this in a two-year period. They put out a, a request for, for samples of hydraulic fluid, a fluid that's used in what are called actuators. And these are these mechanical devices that move the control surfaces of the airplane. And so they needed this hydraulic fluid that would operate across this incredible temperature range. The first sample they got back from a university, uh, they got in an envelope. And they, they opened up the envelope and it was a powder. It was kind of like, what is this? But when they heated it up, to the operating temperature, it was this fantastic fluid that worked right. And they go, um, they had to rewrite the specification to say it has to be a fluid all the time because we can't afford to have powder inside the airplane when it cools down. And so this is where you see the beginning of what are now called synthetic fluids, synthetic hydraulic fluids, synthetic oils. The beginning of synthetic fluids that are now used all the time when you get an oil change. Another problem with the, the high temperature loads or thermal loads on the airframe and causing it to shrink and grow meant that we had a really hard time sealing the fuel tanks on the airplane. The sealants that went around inside the fuel tank had to stretch so much because of the temperature changes as the structure would shrink and grow that they would develop cracks. And as a result, um, when the airplane was sitting on the ground, fuel would leak out of the airplane. If there was no fuel leaking out of an SR-71, it meant that there was no fuel in the airplane. I remember being out by a Blackbird that was doing an engine run, and you could see fuel streaming out of several cracks in the airplane onto the ground. It was as if you took a, like a, a small cup and just as slowly as you could poured it out to where it was a continuous stream coming down, just a little bitty small stream, smaller than a straw. The fuel puddles around the airplane were not a danger as if they were gasoline. The type of fuel that the Blackbird used was, was called a high vapor pressure fuel. It did not ignite very easily. As a matter of fact, you could light a match and toss it into a puddle of fuel and it wouldn't ignite. So in order to get the, the fuel to ignite inside the engine of the Blackbird, they used a chemical called triethylborane. When it came in contact with air, it resulted in this bright yellow-green flame and extremely high temperature that was enough to ignite the, the jet fuel of the Blackbird. The SR-71 was built entirely from sketches. Essentially, the engineers designed the Blackbird on the production floor. Remember those bar napkins? The blueprints weren't even created until after the plane was built. Chris was this really interesting structural design engineer. 
and he had a, an Abe Lincoln beard. He had worked on a lot of the Skunk Works airplanes. He worked on the U-2 and all of the Blackbirds. Uh, he worked on Have Blue and the F-117. When I got back from the tour of the, the Blackbird facility at Palmdale, I went over and saw Chris and I said, you know, your, your bird is amazing. And he goes, I'll, I'll tell you, kid, you know, there's a lot of people that made that bird real. You know, I was, I was part of something far bigger than myself. And we all knew that and we knew it was important. But you got to understand, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It was a hard, hard job. And every now and then we'd forget how special it was because of how hard the job was. There was one time we were assembling the fuselage of the first airplane and there was a big gap in the fuselage where there was no structure. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of scratching my head and I suddenly realized we hadn't done any drawings for that chunk of the fuselage. <laughs> so it was, it was like, okay, well, um, he got out his, his clipboard and 11 by 17 graph paper and he he put a drawing number down in the corner and he drew, here's what the skin needs to look like, here's what the stringers need to make like. One of the, the really unique aspects of the Blackbird is the fuselage is this long, long, long tube. The parts from segment to segment look largely the same, but they may be different lengths. And so he said, you know, make it like this part, except make it this many inches long, make the skin this wide and this long. Um, you know, bend it to this radius. And he put drawing numbers on everything. And for the first couple of birds, those were the official drawings that were used to make the parts for the airplane because schedule was so important. Remember, they're trying to get these birds up into the air in, in two years. And so they went back and, and made the official drawings later. engines were started using this ground cart that was really interesting. It was made up of two Buick V8 racing engines that had no mufflers on them. And these engines were used to spin a shaft that would, would spin the engine of the Blackbird up to uh, an operating speed. And so you have this roar of these engines, these, these racing engines screaming at you. So you're standing there, you got earplugs in, and the engine starts to light up. You could feel the power just at idle of the engine, and we're standing off to the side of the airplane, out by the wingtip. They move the throttle into full afterburner. And the airplane is chained to the ground, so it's not going anywhere. They're doing an engine test. The acoustic energy of the engine, the noise from the engine was so powerful, even though we were standing off to the side, that you couldn't clench your jaw tight enough to keep your teeth from rattling. So you held your jaw open slightly and they warned you to do that. And you could feel the gooey parts of your body, <laughs> for lack of a better term, that this, this bag of water that we're made out of vibrating and your ribs moving around from the roar of this jet engine and you see this flame about 20 feet long coming out of the aircraft it is one of the most incredible sights that you can just imagine it's just a, an absolute definition of power then we got an opportunity to watch the, the blackbird take off 
the, the runway kind of runs east-west and the sun was setting. The, the Blackbird was down at the west end of the runway. We're up near the east end of the runway looking towards the setting sun that's going down behind the mountains. And you see this black silhouette, you know, taxi out onto the runway and turn and, and, and kind of face towards you. And suddenly the, the pilot applies full afterburner to the airplane and this, this, this heat plume behind the airplane grows and it makes for this shimmering glow behind the airplane and the sun shining through that, that, that hot exhaust gas made for this gold, if you can imagine, gold foil is what it looked like to me, just shimmering with this sinister black silhouette inside of it that had the, the fuselage and the two engine nacelles and the little wings sticking out and the tail sticking up. And, and then you started hearing the roar of the airplane come towards you. And the, the pilot rotates the aircraft brings it up off the ground, this, this glowing shimmer behind it, and retracts the landing gear and comes by us at about the height of a telephone pole at full afterburner, and then climbs into the darkening sky off to the east with the 30-foot flames coming out of each engine nacelle as it climbed away towards you. It was one of the most incredible experiences of seeing an airplane fly. It was an experience. And the Air Force guys that were with us stopped and watched it with the exact same wonder that we did, even though they had seen it time after time after time. It was just that special. These guys understood the, the fundamentals of airplane design and how to take those fundamentals, the, the knowns of airplane design, and create these airplanes that were made of complete unknowns. The SR-71 flew extremely high and incredibly fast, but it was also one of the early attempts at stealth. The design achieved a 90% reduction of its radar cross-section, making it far less visible to its adversaries. I got to know a, just an incredible gentleman named Ed Lovett, and he was, I'm going to refer to him as the first stealth engineer. I asked him, you know, how, how did you do it? You know, what, how did you figure out stealth? And he said, Steve, you stop and think you're an engineer. Okay, rather than being mystified by how you invent something, okay, so radar operates a certain way. We know how it operates. We know how it reflects off of surfaces. So if we don't want it to reflect off of a surface, what options are available to us? We just ask ourselves questions. All of these skunkworks engineers, pilots, and mechanics never talked with each other about what they did on a program because it was classified. So Steve was constantly surprised. And it was a small office complex and there was this guy named Eldon Jurs that sat in the office next to mine. He had pictures of B-52s and F-105s and Blackbirds on his, on his wall and found out he was a retired general in the Air Force. One of my hobbies is, is artwork and, and doing pencil rendering. And one weekend I was doing some research because I wanted to create a piece of artwork of the Blackbird doing its record run. It was, it was in a very special paint scheme for that record run. Imagine, you know, the, the whole airplane is painted black and so that cameras could visualize it at altitude, it had a large white plus sign 
painted on the bottom of it so that the, the cameras could track the airplane cleanly as it did its record run. So I'm doing this research on the airplane and open up and there's a photo of the, the pilot and the, the RSO after the record flight. The RSO is the reconnaissance systems operator. They fly in the backseat of the SR-71 to operate the imaging and processing systems. And here is Eldon Jers. Everybody referred to him as Al. He, w- he was the pilot of the record run. And I'm, I'm thinking, he never said a word about this. So I come in on Monday and I show him the picture and I, I go, you know, hey, how come you never said anything about this? And he goes, Steve, I mean, it, was a, it was just a normal flight. My, my thoughts of, of flying this record run was probably, don't screw it up, you know. And no one said before the flight, this is how fast we want you to go. That, that you're supposed to go 3.3 or, or 4.27 CIT, or just go as fast as you want, or as fast as you're, you have the guts to go. No one ever said that. They just said, just go, you know, break the record. And so I thought, well, no one ever gave me authorization to exceed the, the limits of the airplane, which, in this case, you had the, the limits were 3.3 Mach or 4.27 degrees CIT. So, so that happened to be, for that day, in that situation, it happened to be 3.28. When I got back on the ground and I was talking to the engine guys, and they said, you know, just for that short flight, you could have gone, you could have gone 4.55 CIT without any problem. You wouldn't have hurt the engines at all. I said, well, where were you before the flight? Well, you could have, you know, could have right. got, a, got a little bit, a few more tenths of a Mach out of the airplane. Uh, I think it's important that you handle all that with uh, with dignity and humility because it really you have to remember that it really wasn't you. This is this magic airplane you happen to be flying, and you and you took it through its paces, and so you get to you get to participate in the accolades for the airplane. Every single time I flew the airplane, it was a thrill. You fought for those sorties because you wanted to fly the airplane just as much as you could because it was such a challenge and such a thrill to fly but uh, frequently you know when you're flying at 80,000 feet uh, you look down it's pretty hazy quite frankly I mean really? I mean the atmosphere is pretty dirty usually and particularly some of the places we're flying fly on the border of China and look into China it's just all dirty now the cameras did a pretty good job of looking down and finding things but it was just kind of gray you know you see the rivers and cities but you it's pretty gray but some notable exceptions. I told you about this Greenland sortie, you know, going north. The sky was completely crystal clear, and it was in a, it was in the winter time. So, you know, this is northern, the very northern part of Canada, up in the Arctic Circle, with these white mountains and glaciers and fjords, and I mean, it was just beautiful. It is the most beautiful thing that I've seen with my eyeballs other than pictures. The colors of blue and then of course the sky at 85,000 feet. Well, we were about, I was about 80 on that sortie, but uh, the sky is dark blue or black. And really there is a difference between 80 and 85. At 85, it's just about black. 75 to 80, it's more of a dark blue. You know, you can see the the curvature of the earth and everything. It it was an astounding visual, was a training sortie uh, out of Beale, over to Washington State, over to North Dakota, and then head straight south towards Texas. It was, it was late in the afternoon. And as you're heading south towards Texas from North Dakota, on the left, looking to the east, it, it was dark, it was black, night. To the right, 
towards California, it was day. So it was, it was you were flying right down this line. I mean, it was almost a kind of a spiritual thing, you know. You know, I'm flying between, right down the line between night and day. It was, it was really pretty neat. When the Blackbird was developed, there were no spy satellites out there. They showed up shortly after the, the, the Blackbirds became operational. The Blackbirds had a, an operational flexibility advantage over the spy satellites because they were unpredictable as to when they may fly over, whereas satellites were very predictable. But the quality of what the, the satellites collect was becoming better and better. And maintaining and operating an airplane as unique as the, as the SR-71 was incredibly expensive. And so we would retire the, the Blackbirds and, and rely heavily on the satellites. When you look at it, it is a piece of artwork. I, I know its shape was derived by engineering principles and aerodynamics and propulsion needs, but the engineers that, that conceived the airplane that drew it created something that visually was unlike anything that had ever been seen before. And, and to this day, you don't see airplanes that look like that. It's, it's been said that the SR-71 looks part spaceship and part airplane, and, and that its pilots are, are part pilots and, and part spacemen because they look the part. It's this interesting mix. It's this sinister black shape looks like it's doing a thousand miles per hour when it's sitting on the ground and when you see it fly it is unlike any other shape in the air it is just inspiring to see the airplane in the air where it's meant to be sometimes science takes place at its own pace but the the development of the blackbird wasn't like that it, it was invention on a schedule and that's an incredibly tough thing to go do all too often we'll step back and say, you know, but, but, but it's hard to do because of this and because of this and because of this and because of this, and we talk ourselves out of it. I think what is really magical with these, these Skunk Works engineers that I worked with was they just assumed it could be done and determined how you would do it. I will say that just fundamentally structured how I approached problems after working with the grandfathers of the Skunk Works. The impossible is something you've never seen before. And when people look at a blackbird, they see the impossible as reality. Inside Skunk Works is produced in Palmdale, California, inside the Skunk Works. Our next episode will be released on March 25th. Stay tuned for a sneak peek. For exclusive content, check out our show notes on LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunk Works. Lockheed leadership at the time said, well, we don't have room for you, so they gave him a circus tent. And there was these terrible 
putrid smells that came out of the place. But people really didn't know much about it. It was very secretive as to what went on. And, you know, we're looking around, realizing what the environment was like. Picked up the phone one day and said, Skunk Works. <laughs>